I could talk about pleasure all day. Like pleasure is, I think pleasure gets, and for a lot of my clients who are sexual trauma survivors, they hate that word. Um, and so I just want to say that like pleasure has been mislinked to being sexual, but it's not just sexual. Pleasure is like joy in your body, satisfaction in your body, something like positive, happy, settled in your body. So it really it is so many things. And I think especially for people who struggle with being sexual because of trauma or who identify as asexual, like we really, really, really have to redefine pleasure to be so many other things. That was Andrea Glick, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 195. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. This month, our theme is dating, sex, and changing the stigma around being single. But before we get into today's episode, I just want to say that I hope you're staying as safe and sane as possible right now. I know it is tough. For the folks in our Real Talk Radio Patreon community, I'm going to be hosting some virtual group co-working sessions over the next six weeks, which will hopefully provide support and structure for those of us who are working from home right now, or who simply want to harness some good collective energy to spend time on a personal project or a relaxing hobby, or just come to the co-working and read. (laughs) It's a, a time that you can do whatever you want with. And for the folks who are pledged at the $4 per episode tier in Patreon, that's the group uh, for whom I write my twice monthly essay series, Notes of Grit and Grace. I have committed to writing weekly instead for the next six weeks at no additional charge in hopes of sharing some encouraging stories that can help us all feel much less alone in this time of self-isolation and social distancing. If you're interested in joining the Patreon community and helping to make sure that this show and my small business weathers the uncertain financial storm that is swirling all around us, I would love to have you. You can find everything you need to join at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Okay, and now let's get into today's conversation with Andrea Glick. Andrea is a psychotherapist, somatic healer, and sex educator who specializes in treating trauma and PTSD for women, survivors, and queer and trans folks, utilizing body-based and feminist therapy practices to help clients come home to themselves. In this episode, Andrea gives us a primer on some of the key aspects of her work, namely attachment styles and somatic healing. We talk about how healing can happen through BDSM and sex, small ways to enhance intimacy and pleasure, and lots more. Throughout the conversation, Andrea shares some wonderfully tangible tools and exercises, which I hope that you'll be able to use and find as helpful as I did. Quick heads up that her side of the audio isn't great. It's definitely still listenable, but we had a few hiccups that means that it isn't up to our usual standard. This isn't an issue on any of the upcoming episodes um, that are on deck after this. So I really appreciate your patience and understanding in the meantime. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, let's do this. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I have so been looking forward to this conversation. There are so many aspects of your work and like the topics that you regularly dig into that I've been feeling really curious about personally, but also quite a beginner at. And I really love conversations where I know that I will like learn a ton. So thank you for coming on the show to teach and talk. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. And I love to hear that folks want to know about the things that I want to nerd out about. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. Nerding out episodes are the best episodes. So to start, for folks who aren't familiar with you, what would you say are some must know things about Andrea? Like what's making you feel joyful lately? What is your, I don't know, daily life look like? That kind of thing. Yeah, I love that question very much. Some things to know about Andrea. I'm a psychotherapist. I am a major somatics nerd. I am all about learning about the body, about the nervous system, how to come back into yourself, whether it's through breath or awareness of the body or some sort of practice that can be developed around releasing energy that doesn't need to be there, whatever. Like that's sort of my a thing that I'm always thinking about and always practicing for myself. Some things that are bringing me joy right now. I've been really into cooking for myself as a way of doing my own healing work and healing my inner child um, and having the way that I show up for myself be like opening the fridge and there's like all of this delicious, amazing food that I've put a lot of thought and intention into and like shared with other folks that I love. Um, so I've been really joyful about that, specifically Allison Roman's recipes on the New York Times, um, <laughs> for getting specific. And um, another thing to know about me, I live on occupied Lenape territory, which is colonized as New York City, but I am a huge nature person. And so I'm always trying to get my little slice of that whenever I can. Hmm. Yeah, I grew up in New York and was not cool. a big nature person as a kid. It's funny. It's something that I have become like obsessed with as an adult and hiking and backpacking and all of that. And it's, it's just, it's always funny to me, like how your upbringing can be so different from the things that you wind up loving when you're older. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a true. Actually, I grew up doing a lot of nature stuff. My like parents are really big hikers and backpackers and canoers and all that. Um, and then I had my rebellion and I like moved to the city and um, was like, I don't want anything to do with that. And then now full circle, I'm like just trying to get back in the woods again. (laughs) Yeah, I have been in Bend, Oregon for the last, I don't know, like five-ish years. And there is so much good outdoorsing here. So yes, I hear you. (laughs) Oh, amazing. That's awesome. So we're a few months into 2020 now. And I remember back, I think it was in December, you contributed to like a goal setting themed article um, that I can link to in the show notes on thehealthy.com, where you talked about the importance of setting goals that honor what your inner child needs or what your younger self needed but didn't get. And that was so interesting Mm -hmm. to me because I've never really thought about goals that way. And I was hoping that you could tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, totally. I feel very resistant towards New Year's resolutions because they're usually really (sighs) centered around like weight loss or eating a particular way, which is super activating for those of us that have had disordered eating or deal with body dysmorphia or anything like that. Um, And just living in diet culture, I consider to be a huge trauma that we all experience, especially in childhood, but continually. And so when I was asked to write about that article, the things that I was really thinking about were like, okay, what would it look like for goals to be a way to feel good and take care of ourselves and not be a way to shame ourselves for the way that we have been doing things for the last year or like find a goal that's centered around something like weight loss, which isn't, I believe to be 
sort of wrapped up in our own recovery from trauma or um, just sort of the general, I would say like wear and tear of living in this world that is often traumatizing, even if we aren't experiencing direct trauma. And so the thing I was thinking about was like, we have these younger parts that live inside of us. When we become adults, we aren't suddenly adults 100%. Like if anybody's ever like walked into a toy store and seen a stuffed animal and got really excited about it. Or like if anybody likes to color or if you like go back to your hometown and feel like a teenager again, like those parts of us are still very much within reach. We just don't really know how to listen to them. And so when I think about, yeah, like whether it's connecting with yourself or setting a goal for yourself, like kind of even how I was talking about like cooking for me has been something that's been really joyful, even though it, it seems like it's this like basic thing. It's actually not like, if my goal, quote unquote, for the year is to lovingly cook delicious food for myself that tastes good and makes me feel good and is like fun to do, that's something that I can do for my inner child that had, you know, a lot of trauma around food and eating. And so how can the goals be towards recovery and not some impossible standard? Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I feel like, I mean, obviously, I've heard people mention, right, kind of inner child, inner kid stuff before. And I don't know why mm-hmm. it's always been really hard for me to connect with it. I feel like there's some kind of a, a block around how do I even like know what the inner child needs? I don't know. There's like something in that for me where I'm like, it makes sense and it sounds really lovely. And then I feel like I can't get to the next step. And I certainly can't be the only one that's in that position. So mm. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Totally. Yeah. I talk with clients a lot about how they can get to know their inner child. I feel like looking at pictures of yourself when you were little is really helpful and remembering what it felt like in that, if you can remember that memory of when that picture was taken. So it's like a picture of you at school, it's a picture of you in nature, a picture of you at, um, in your family's house and remembering how that felt to be that age and just start to notice what that feels like physically, notice what that feels like cognitively notice what sort of like feelings may be coming up. So I feel like that's a really helpful way. Or even if you want to like write a letter to yourself at that age, again, looking at the picture is really helpful. So that's one thing. And then I feel like another exercise that kind of goes along with that is letting that younger part of you respond to the letter that you wrote. And this is like very classic inner child work. I did not make this up. Like this is Um, something that folks have been doing in therapy for a while, which is to let your inner child respond with your non-dominant hand. And so you are writing in this way that looks very childlike and it can really help us tap into that more childlike place. So that's, that's one exercise that I find to be, or a couple different ones that I find to be really helpful. And then another one, um, is to kind of like set the stage with things that you really liked as a kid. So maybe it's like a TV show or a movie for me, like watching Disney plus has been really great. There's so many classics from when I was a kid or like letting yourself buy like a food that maybe you really liked as a kid, you know, like lucky charms or something, whatever um, that maybe you either weren't allowed to have, or it was like a special treat or you just liked as a kid. Um, So like reconnecting somatically through food or media can be really helpful too, um, to just sort of like, get accustomed to what that younger part feels like when they're more present. Um, And then you can start to ask the deeper questions around like, what do you need? What did you not get that you need? Um, How can I support you? Those are so lovely. 
Yeah. yeah. I like all of those ideas. I also, it's funny. I feel like I, and I, I'm not this way anymore, but there would have been a time in my life where I sort of would have rolled my eyes at this kind of stuff. Like, oh, uh-huh, not like I'm sure. too cool for this, but sort of, right? And now to have come full circle to be like, nope, I will do all the things, right? Like, give me all the woo-woo things. Give me all the exercises. Give me all the whatever. So I, I definitely see, and this is the kind of thing too, where like I have to stop myself from overthinking of like, well, I think that what I would get out of this is X, or I think that the end result would be, it's like you have to actually do the exercise and not just like try to think your way to the end of it. Oh, God, that's so true. I even that's a reminder for me because sometimes I'm reading things and I'm like, oh, I can use this with clients and I know exactly how it's going to go. And I don't even need to like try it myself because I know how it's going to feel. <laughs> but it's like, no, it's it's important to just do the thing. Take the five breaths, write the letter, even if um, you think you know how it's going to end for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So you've mentioned um, your work lightly a couple of times. Will you tell me the story of how you got into this career? Yeah, totally. When I was a teenager, I was really struggling with a lot of what I now understand to be trauma responses, but what I in the past would have called depression. And we can talk more about that language later because it's very important to me um, to make that distinction. And um, dealing with trauma responses of hypoarousal, which is a collapse, submit, freeze response, again, normally called depression. And then I would fluctuate back up into what I call hype and what a lot of somatic therapists call hyperarousal, which is that more activated fight or flight response, um, which is, again, usually categorized as anxiety, and was really struggling and didn't have a lot of coping in place and was really lost and found myself with the opportunity to be a peer counselor at a suicide hotline for teens um, that was run by other teenagers. And this was in like a small state that I, in the middle of nowhere that I grew up in. And it was this incredible nonprofit organization. Folks can look it up. It's called Kudo, K-U-T-O. And they trained us in crisis intervention. Like we're all like 15, 16, 17 Um, They trained us in um, building a therapeutic relationship over the phone, helping people find resources, holding space for people, for teens. Um, And it was really incredible. I used a lot of the tools that I was using with clients um, or other peers on myself. I used it with friends. And every day that I would go in there, I really did have this feeling of like, my life is worth living because I'm helping someone. So that really started this work for me. and, And it now looking at my practice, I'm like, oh, of course, I, of course, I started with trauma work and have like circled back to it. But um, so that's how I got started. And then in undergrad, I studied gender studies, queer theory, critical race theory, and really wanted to find a way to share the knowledge that I was getting about feminism and the history of LGBTQ folks and and learning white supremacy and all these things. I really wanted to find a way to make that information more accessible. Uh, so I chose to not go into academia, which was like an idea I had for a bit, and decided to go to social work school so that I could kind of blend these two parts of my life together um, and do feminist psychotherapy. And then in grad school was working with a lot of highly traumatized folks again, and everybody was dealing with a lot of chronic pain, like really specific neck, back like fibromyalgia, pain, again, like, quote, unexplainable, quote, no cure pain, and was starting to experience a lot of it myself, both because of the trauma that I was experiencing 
in my personal life at that time. And then also because of the vicarious trauma of doing that work, but also because our, our bodies do tend to try on other people's experiences as a way to be compassionate towards them. So I was like, okay, there's something about the body. All my clients are traumatized. They're all in pain. And then I started to learn more about somatic work. So body-based work and how trauma equals a fight or flight response, which is inflammation in the body equals pain. And so, um, that connection was really groundbreaking for me. And I felt like in order for me to do the work that I do now, I really needed to learn more about the body and more about the nervous system. So I'm still in training at the sensory motor psychotherapy Institute where I am learning a lot about still the, that mind body connection and how to use the body as a tool for resources. And then with my clients, I identify as a lesbian. Um, I'm a queer person. I have worked with a lot of people who are part of the BDSM and King community um, and the poly community as well. So I work with people who are really at the margins in certain ways to come back to their bodies, to understand the impact of trauma on their bodies. Most of my clients are trauma survivors. So um, whether that be like a really, really big, horrific one-time incident or um, an abusive relationship or attachment trauma, which can look like a lot of different things. It can be someone not validating your identity um, like a parent, or it could be something a lot worse. So, or not a lot worse, but like a lot more um, like physically or sexually abusive is what I meant by that, but did not mean worse. That's still bad. Yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up here was through those many different paths that have led me to my practice. And um, yeah, it's, it's been an incredible journey and it's still unfolding every day. Yeah. And there's, there's so much even in that, that I'm like, Oh, I want to dig into this. I want to dig into this, but I guess I'm going to ask you what is potentially a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Can you define trauma? Like, I feel like trauma is a word. I mean, especially like mainstream now is getting talked about more. And I wonder, I don't even know if there is like a specific definition, right? Like I'm just interested in like what you, what you mean when you say that. Yes. Right. So when I say that I work with trauma, that is an umbrella term for sure. And I don't really use the term big T, little T trauma because I don't think it helps to minimize anything. That's why I corrected myself. And I was like, no, wait, that's still bad. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it like that. So trauma can be, I'll actually, I'll use what my training talks about. So in sensory motor, we talk about traumatic events and then we talk about attachment trauma. Um, And those can be, those can overlap. But just for example, so like a traumatic event can be a car accident. It can be a a traumatic loss of someone in your life. It can be um, a single incident sexual assault. So that's, those are the sort of like big event traumas. Attachment trauma can be having a parent who doesn't value you, who doesn't listen to you, who treats you like their therapist or like their partner. Um, It can be not having your needs met in any way as a, as a child. So th- those are the kind of like the two categories of, of trauma. But then what I would add to that is also the trauma of living in a patriarchal, white supremacist, ableist, homophobic, transphobic world, which is the sort of everyday chips away at our sense of self, at our um, ability to care for ourselves. Oppression is trauma. Um, Again, living in diet culture is trauma. Rape culture is trauma. Having all of these different experiences could be categorized as trauma. So it is really so much. And I think the thing that people get stuck on is that um, they feel like 
they can't name certain things that have happened to them as trauma because they don't fit these particular stories that we have around what trauma is. And so I feel like at first, so like in like the history of trauma therapy, first PTSD was developed and trauma was named around war veterans. So that's how we came to talk about this in that way. In um, I would say like a more like white Western psychotherapy sense. Um, but that many, many, many traditions of healing in this world have honored trauma as being a part of healing and needing to work with spirit and with breath and with all of this. So just want to name that too, that I think a lot of times we lose that ongoing history, but that it took a lot of incredible, mostly women um, to add rape to being a considered a trauma in addition to being um, away at war. And then we kind of have these two categories of trauma. So trauma is either this or it's this. And it was very binary and it was very gendered and all these things. And then I think as the years have gone on, we've started to honor that trauma can look like a lot more things. It, it's not, again, it's not only just a car accident or, or a skiing accident. It can also be um, your parents calling you stupid, right? Mm-hmm. Like it can be a lot of things. Um, it can be surgery, right? Like the, we don't really think about medical trauma because we're like, well, someone's helping you, but actually going under is incredibly traumatizing for our body and our nervous system. So essentially a lot of things are trauma. And I don't say that to like freak people out where it's like everybody has trauma, but to normalize everybody has trauma. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's more of the way that I'll explain it to clients or anybody in my life. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I feel like there's a couple things in that too, that we will circle back to, but you mentioned attachment trauma, which made me think about something else that I wanted to ask you about, which was attachment style. And so I'm hoping that we can kind of pivot and talk about that because, you know, have you, I'm sure you have, but that sort of phenomenon where you've never really heard of something and then you hear of it and then you feel like it's everywhere. Has that happened to you? Yes. (laughs) I feel like that's attachment style for me right now that I'm like, this friend's talking about it. This friend's talking about it. I'm seeing it everywhere on the internet. And um, so it's like an interesting thing where I feel like I've only recently begun like learning more about it. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of give like an attachment 101 primer. I don't even know if that's like the right um, terminology to use, but to sort of set the stage in which to talk about, um, you know, more like relationship therapy type stuff. Mm, Yeah, for sure. The first thing that I always say with attachment stuff is that we people really like to put people in boxes. I like this too. Like I love astrology. So like I'm here for this, but it's a way that we help make sense of each other, how we make sense of ourselves, how we feel heard and understood, how we feel validated in an identity, but it can also be harmful obviously in other ways. So I have a lot of like clients or friends or whoever in my life be like, what's my attachment style? As if there's only one that you can be. And the thing that I always say is like, oh, well, you're all of them. We're all, all of them. So we can have a dominant attachment style. And for folks who don't know literally what attachment style means, it is the way that we connect and we show up in relationship, the style of how we do that. That is very much based off of the relationships we had with our earliest caregivers. And the reason that I say we have all of the styles is that depending on the relationship, depending on where you're at in your life, depending on the other person's attachment style, different parts of us can come up. Usually there is a dominant part that again, was, was nurtured in childhood, whether that be in a positive or, um, or difficult way that takes over. So like for a lot of people, they find that they're more anxious, which means that they're more preoccupied with the other person's experience. There's more of that hyper aroused energy of like 
needing closeness, if things don't feel okay, it can feel really devastating and triggering, needing a lot of reassurance or more avoidant, which is the more like distance is safe. I'm like independence is safe. Closeness is scary. Um, if somebody needs me too much, that's a huge turnoff. I need a lot of time alone. And again, like I've just laid out this binary for you, but there's no way that everybody is either one thing or the other, just like with gender, sexuality, like all of these things. So we can fluctuate between those places or we can be in the middle or we can be, you know, more skewed to one side. Our partner can be more of the anxious partner and we're more of the avoidant. And then as soon as they become more avoidant of us, we become anxious. So we really, really do hold all of these parts. I really do um, encourage people to not like stick with one and be like, this is who I am all the time. Like, it's okay to say like, I am more anxious leaning. That's how I'll put it. Or I'm more avoided leaning attachment wise. And then there's folks who are anxious avoidant, which again, I would kind of argue is everybody, honestly, but those are folks who do tend to fluctuate between anxious and avoidant more quickly. And the way that that's different than like just holding all the parts of different attachments is that for those folks, it can be really confusing to feel one way and then moments later feel the other way. So like feel really close and feel like you really want closeness and closeness feels good. And then all of a sudden be like, I need this person to like get the hell away from me. So, um, that's kind of like an attachment one one And, um, I think another thing that people get wrong about attachment styles is that it's because of your parents. Um, like your attachment style is completely related to that, but it's actually way more complicated than that. So like, first off, not everybody's raised by their parents. So I do like to say caregivers instead. Um, but it's not just about your primary caregivers. Like your attachment is based off of your relationship with your siblings, with your friends, with your peers, um, your first partnerships. Unfortunately, when we're teenagers and we have no idea what the hell we're doing, those relationships are really impactful in our attachment style. Um, sorry, everyone. And so, um, you know, like that's another component to attachment. Our first really serious relationship really impacts our attachment style. We really do carry the, um, the wounds and the narratives and the energy from those past relationships with us. So it really is more complex than just like your parents, like effed you up in this particular way. And then now you're this way forever. It's like, no, we actually are all of these parts. And like, we are these parts because of so many different life experiences. Oh, yeah, that's a super helpful introduction. I also really appreciate the reminder about, I don't know, like not falling too in love with like a category system, right? Like, I think that can be true yeah. for so many things. It's like, well, I'm either this or I'm this. And th- I agree with you that there's that very human compulsion to want to like understand yourself and understand each other. And it can feel like such a relief when you learn about something that does explain like, oh, I'm this way because of this maybe. And like, there can be some relief in that. And also, like, I think that there can be a tipping point where then that itself becomes a cage or a trap. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or that like we we start to inhabit that identity when it's like an attachment style isn't an identity. It's just a part of us that gets really scared sometimes. Mm, right. Yeah, sure. Um, I find it's really helpful to locate why those attachment parts come up or like why the anxious or the avoidant part is more dominant. So like rooting that in like childhood experiences, past relationship experiences, I find that to be really helpful. 
And then whoever you're in relationship with, whether it be coworkers, friends, family, lovers, partners, whoever, talking about that. Because if something is, if there's some sort of issue in the relationship, something's coming up, communication or figuring out time spent with each other or other partners, if you all are opening up your relationship, sex, intimacy, whatever, it, it does usually come back to attachment. And so having those conversations with the people in our lives, putting it in the context of that is really helpful versus like, I'm thinking about like the work that I do in, with relationships and with couples. And there's like this, I don't know why we get stuck in this loop, but we do. And I'm like, okay, well, let's bring in your like childhood experiences, your past relationships and your attachment styles. And then like, boom, all of a sudden, everything makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So looking at it, like you said, as like a root. Okay. So maybe this is why this is happening and like using that to understand like current relationship dynamics. Yeah, totally. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So it seems like this attachment style work is like uh, central or at least sort of to like the overall relationship therapy that you do. Does that feel accurate? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the, um, I do a lot of, um, work with the Imago theory, which is, um, this idea that our caregivers create this composite image of an Imago, um, this idea or person or like feeling of home. And then we go out and we look for someone who's going to feel, feel like that Imago. And, um, that is why we can often find ourselves dating similar people or like, again, stuck in these patterns with people. Um, and so when we bring the consciousness of like, okay, what am I trying to fix through? What am I trying to heal from my childhood wounds through this relationship? Why? Then that's why I'm picking this person. Then it helps us bring a lot more consciousness into the relationship. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you give me like uh, some kind of example of that? Of like of what an imago session looks like, or I guess like when you said, "Oh, okay, I'm trying to heal this like through this relationship." I, I guess like I'm just looking for an example of like what that might look like. Oh yes, absolutely right. So like, if someone is feeling like their partner doesn't accept them, and then they look back at their childhood and kind of realize that they've they've never really felt accepted by their parents, for example then they might pick people in to be in a relationship with who really just don't understand them or don't value them and are trying to have a corrective emotional experience of finally being understood, finally being valued. And so the kind of turning point in that relationship with that person would be this person being like, I see you, I value you. I didn't understand how how wonderful you were in this particular way or I didn't fully understand the complexity of of you in this particular way. And then now I do. And so then that would kind of shift that would that would heal that wound that that person was bringing into the relationship. And so the thing that's really complex about that is we can either keep picking people who are going to keep hurting us in the same way, or we're going to pick somebody, end up in a relationship with somebody who can either hurt us in that same way, or we can have a transformation where they can um, help us heal something. And that doesn't apply to relationships where there's any sort of toxicity or abuse or, um, it like there has to be a lot of safety and consciousness in a relationship for that transformation to happen. So I just want to name that because I think a lot of times in abusive relationships, people will use this really shaming language like, well, you picked this person um, where it's like, no, actually, this person like thought they were getting into a relationship that was going to be full of love and is actually really abusive. And that's not their fault. 
Um, so I don't, I don't use that to be shaming for people, but that, um, in the context of a like healthy and conscious relationship, we, we may uncover that we've picked somebody who can either hurt us or heal us in this particular way. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. It's funny as you're talking, it's, I feel like this is a very natural impulse that I'm like, mm, let me dissect all of my own things. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm I'm really interested in uh, this kind of like topic of the relationship therapy work that you do, um, particularly as it relates to sex, which I know you mentioned um, like BDSM earlier, and I think we'll probably dig back into that. But I guess before that, it would be wonderful to hear about some of, I don't know, maybe like the concrete tools that you love to teach when it comes to helping people communicate more deeply, more effectively about specifically about sex and desire. I feel like once I I was talking to some people, um, like in the community, knowing that this themed month was coming up, like, okay, we're going to, you know, talk more about sex, about relationships, that type of stuff, which obviously we've talked about on the show before. But, you know, it was me asking, you know, what do you want to hear more about? And this came up a couple of times from a couple of different people Mm -hmm. of, uh, like, the communication aspect around it, right? Not specifically the, like, sex itself, but like more about communicating about desire, like potentially even around like rekindling desire. And so I'm wondering if that's something that you are open to talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So communicating, there's actually a really helpful um, tool in Imago therapy, which is this dialogue of letting the other person, there's, there's a receiver and there's a sender and the sender makes an appointment with the receiver to, to give information and the receiver doesn't offer any sort of advice or suggestions. They just listen and they ask clarifying questions to make sure that they're understanding what the person is saying. So the clarifying question would be like, Oh, can you like say more about this particular part of this so that I like can get more information about this thing? It's like, Oh, can you like, you said this and this and this, did I get that right? And then you can ask a clarifying question about what the person said, but you're, you're really just letting them speak from their heart and just, just listening and making sure that they feel listened to and understood. And I feel like that is such a huge communication tool that a lot of us could really learn a lot from because oftentimes as someone is talking, we're formulating what we're going to say back or we have suggestions about how to fix something or make something better when sometimes the person just needs to be listened to. So I feel like with desires, with fantasies, with um, like pieces of sexuality that we want to explore, we don't really get the experience of a safe container to talk about that in ever in our whole lives because we're ashamed about being sexual and we're like especially ashamed about having like a kink or a fantasy or whatever. Um, we're like sold this sexual script that we're supposed to follow forever of like this happens when this happens when this happens. So creating a space to just listen. So like asking questions like, can we make an appointment for for you to send me some ideas that you have or like if the person wants is the sender like can we make an appointment to for me to like tell you some things I've been thinking about um and then we can make an appointment at like a later time when like it's your time to talk so that's one thing is I feel like to create more communication that's more of a back and forth is that's less of a back and forth and more of a like creating space for one person to really go deep and explore some things that they may not feel safe talking about in like a quick conversation or a conversation in which they know the other person is going to like come back with like a suggestion or something that they want to say. So really making the space to openly communicate and like really unearth all of that. So that's one thing that I feel like can be really helpful is, is making intentional space in that way. Mm, yeah, I love that. So just I guess to like go deeper on this a little bit. So like if I'm 
the sender, right? Then I'm the one who's going to be sharing the things, right? And if you're the one who's receiving the things, like you said, it's listening, it's kind of clarifying questions, making sure that it's being understood. And then like at the end of that, that like that container is completed and kind of move on to something mm-hmm. else as opposed to, okay, then we switch. Right. Yeah. Right. And then it's like, now it's my turn to say everything that I've been wanting to say. Um, and we're like, the person has like the space or like the, the evening, like tonight is a night that like so-and-so gets to share. And I mean, I think it is possible to do the dialogue back and forth, like maybe like 30 minutes, 30 minutes, but it can be really nice to just let somebody have their own space to really communicate. I think also like if people have a lot of shame around their desires and fantasies and they need a little help, like specific questions. So for some people, like having this open-ended time and space isn't going to feel good because they may need more specific questions to like feel like they can answer them than maybe like coming up with a set of questions for a partner or like deciding on a set of questions with each other that you might want to ask, like what is a fantasy you never thought you would tell anybody about? Like maybe that person wouldn't offer that information unless they weren't asked that specific question by a partner. Um, But I do still think that the Imago piece of like not offering any feedback or um, like just affirming the person, like I hear you, I hear that you said this, that sounds, you know, like I'm really glad that you felt like you could share that with me. And not like jumping to making a plan or offering any advice or um, sharing their own thoughts about that unless the person has asked for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like this, I could see how this would be really helpful, particularly for someone like me who, you know, I feel like I talk fast and think fast and like love engaging in back and forth conversation. I mean, obviously, right. I like have a, I like talk professionally and have a podcast (laughs) for my job. So I, I think that there is something that's really freeing in like I I imagine as like I'm putting myself in the position of being like the receiver right on this that of just being able to fully listen and not have to come up with something to say and just I think sometimes just because you can come up with like a quick response to something or you know let's say you do think on your feet really well right that type of thing doesn't mean that you wouldn't be better served by taking some space and I forget that sometimes that like not everything requires an immediate response and sometimes like what can come up if I you know whether it's like research or conversation right like ingesting whatever the information is or whatever's being shared and then sitting with it for a while and then coming back to it. Like just that little bit of pause can open up so many things that wouldn't have come up if it was just like rapid fire, like back and forth, bing, 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 bing. Yeah, and you're not really mindful. You're not really creating space for your partner to share. It's more of like the fast paced, lots of information world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I love that as an exercise. I also I appreciate you giving, you know, specific, like tools and things. I feel like already you've shared a couple of things that anyone listening could be like, okay, I'm gonna go try this at home, right, <laughs> which is like great and super actionable. And I, I love that. I'm wondering, and it doesn't have to be um, like a, like I said, a specific tool, um, but I am interested in sort of the subset. Obviously, we've been talking about communication and sex. What about when you're working with folks who are struggling with a difference in desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Desire discrepancy is really, really hard. I feel like it's usually in my work related to some kind of trauma that's happened, whether it be like sexual or physical or something like that. So when that's the case, it's usually about the like making space for the survivor to feel safe and loved, even if they can't be as sexual as their other partner would like. Um, and coming up with other ways for folks to be intimate with each other. And then for a lot of clients of mine, and I'm not saying this is like always the solution, but um, 
opening up the relationship can be really helpful. So like if one person has a much, much higher sex drive than the other partner, it can be helpful to have that other person be able to experience that with other people. Um, And not everybody feels comfortable with that. And that's totally fine. But it is something that can be really destigmatizing for that person who does feel more sexual. Like, I love and accept you for being this way. And like, I you have my blessing to like, go and express yourself to the fullest sexual extent of who you are. So that's like something that is is an option for some folks and certainly not for all. Um, And then to go back to like, how to how to create more intimacy between those two folks in their relationship, I think finding other ways to be intimate or finding other ways to be sexual. So like sex doesn't always have to be penetration. Sex doesn't always have to be like folks touching each other. Like I suggest a lot that couples masturbate with each other or show each other how they like to be touched and how that's incredibly hot and is still sex. Um, Or like a playing with sensation. So whether that's like, you know, like warm massage candle oil or something more intense, like hot, hot wax or, Um, some kind of like BDSM implement like a flogger or a paddle, like expanding your definition of sex and then finding how you all can connect more frequently. Maybe if it's not this one, again, like sexual script that we are told we have to follow. Yeah. The sexual script thing I feel like is so real. Like the, whether it was, you know, specific conditioning, like I keep thinking, it's funny, as you've been talking a couple times for whatever reason, I keep thinking about Cosmo magazine and like just- Things that were really formative for me when I was, I don't know, like 17 to like early 20s, right? Reading these types of like listicles and and obviously that's like that magazine specifically is not the only place where these kind of resources exist. But I do feel like at least at the time that I was reading it, I don't know what they're up to these days, but that it was very much a script like this is the role that you're supposed to play and this is what it's supposed to look like and that this is how you're supposed to please your male partner and this like there just was a lot of scripting that I was just so it was like completely unconscious to me yeah god that's so true I haven't thought about Cosmo in so long right damn that magazine really did some real damage for me (laughs) really hear you so you mentioned outside of sex, finding other ways to be intimate and, you know, whether it's in a situation of difference in desire or just, you know, expanded intimacy in general. Can you give some examples of that? Yeah, totally. Um, from, sorry, inside the relationship between like two folks and a couple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that letting go of the script and getting more in touch with actual desires or like inherent desires instead of what folks are taught to believe they should want or they should follow. And so again, like that can be through experimenting different sensations, whether that be through BDSM or that be through just like sensation play in general of like ice cubes or like, again, like hot massage candle oil. Yeah. I feel like massage is really incredible for building intimacy Um, eye gazing again, it's like thinking of the things that you never thought that you would like, if you heard you'd roll your eyes, but like looking into someone's eyes for an extended period of time is incredibly intimate being held in different ways. So like not just cuddling, but like having your partner lay their body or part of their body in your lap or vice versa. Like that's a huge intimacy building exercise that I'll do. That's from Imago. Even like if someone is sharing more about their about like their desires or something that's coming up for them, like holding them in that way and that like more childlike way is really beautiful. I think like any, again, like any sort of sexual experience that is not attached to like, we do this, then we do this, then we do this. So whether that's like using hands more, using mouths more, 
Um, toys, like any sex toy, is such a like fun, exciting way to change the script. And within, and then again, like within BDSM, there's like truly just so many different ways to experience intimacy and sex, whether it's like having your boots cleaned and shined or using rope or um, taking on a particular role. Like there's so, there's really is so much in there that I think that people um, who've been sold this particular like heterosexual vanilla, um, we do this, then we do this script really feel like isn't for them, but it really can be for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's go into this a little bit. Um, you just touched a little bit on BDSM. Can you perhaps define that for anyone who's unfamiliar? Yeah, absolutely. So BDSM stands for bondage, discipline, sadism, masochism. (laughs) Sorry, dyslexia. I was like, what comes next? And essentially being restrained, being in a power dynamic, experiencing pain, giving pain, Um, any sort of like power play, although like what I always say and what like many folks who are BDSM educators say, like there's always power in relationships and it's so, yeah, like any, any sort of play that involves power, restraint, pain, um, going into another state of consciousness, experiencing sensation, um, take like, uh, dynamics of different roles, whether that be, um, like dominant or submissive or like even, you know, like teacher or student, like any sort of role. Um, and I think that a lot of folks are probably playing around with a lot more of this than they realize in sex, whether it's like unnamed power um, dynamics or like unnamed fantasies. But um, yeah, but I think that there's, there's really a lot within BDSM that can help folks build intimacy that um, we don't re- really talk about enough. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like are some of the more common myths or misconceptions about BDSM? Oh, God. Yeah, that it's like you want to do anything kink-related because of your trauma, as if that's something bad. <laughs> like, as if wanting like to heal through, um, like, somatics and intimacy is a bad thing. Um, but, like, you only want that because you're so messed up from your trauma or that, like, it. I think I feel like Fifty Shades of Grey really put out a bad, in the in some ways, a really like bad rap where it's like it's always like a dominant man and a submissive woman where it's like actually like queer people are have always utilized BDSM like there are so many women who are dominant and so many men who are submissives, um, so many people who don't even identify as men or women who um, engage in BDSM. Um, other myths I feel like. Yeah, like, I think the main one is, like, if you are kinky or if you are into BDSM, like, something is really, really wrong with you or something really bad happened to you when you were little. I feel like those are the big ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we see all of that in different forms of pop culture, like, all of those different – everything you just said, I feel like, will resonate with someone, not necessarily resonate because they believe it, but, like, that they have heard or seen something that supports that. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. So I'm interested for you how you – and not necessarily like came to see it differently than that. Cause I, I'm not really even talking about like the, the, the myths, misconceptions, but you've mentioned a couple of times how it can be a way to build intimacy, even perhaps like a way of healing. And I'm interested in like that connection. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A way to build intimacy. I mean, it is such a 
vulnerable and intentional and being in your body practice to do with someone where when we can do what Cosmo told us to do, we're very much not oftentimes building intimacy. We're not being vulnerable. And so I feel like that's one component of it. And then for the other healing component for trauma survivors or for any of us who have had to leave our bodies or dissociate, which is honestly most of us, whether it's like on our phones or traveling or yeah, being in the hospital, like we all have experiences of having to leave ourselves and BDSM really does invite you back into your body. You kind of have to be in your body so that you can tell your dominant if like the impact play is too intense or to communicate with your submissive about like how they're feeling like they're always ha- or, like if something is off like it really is the dominance role in a lot of ways to be attuned to their submissive to make sure that like everybody's still good so like there there's all of these invitations back into the body so that's healing and then for some folks engaging in particular dynamics for example like a daddy girl dynamic or like a mommy girl boy what have you dynamic is really healing for attachment-based trauma for folks who've experienced more like single incident trauma, whether that be like a sexual assault or something like that. Like a lot of folks have fantasies. It's in fact like the most common fantasy is to like recreate or mimic something like that. And so um, that re really that rewrites that narrative. It puts the survivor back in the driver's seat around that particular experience. It helps people make sense of what happened. Um, it eroticizes something that was incredibly traumatizing, which again, like takes the power back. Um, so there is a lot of complexity here. And I think that a lot more folks are interested in this than um, have felt comfortable sharing because it, again, got categorized as like, oh, you only like this because you're so, you have so much baggage or you, you're you so like effed up when it's actually like, we make sense of what has happened to us through um, through storytelling and through feeling physically and emotionally. And this is another way to do that. Yeah, well, anytime something gets a stigma around it, right, then, okay, maybe we don't want to associate with that. And like you said, that there's probably a lot more folks that want to experiment with this in some way, it doesn't have to mean in something that feels like extreme for them, right, but experiment with like anything that you just said in some way in a way that feels safe, but probably wouldn't associate themselves necessarily with it, right? Like, uh, there is something there of, okay, there's potentially something here for maybe not everyone, but for a lot of folks. Yeah, right. Exactly. And like, if this isn't for you, that's fine. It's not the only way to heal, like by any means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I I do like this sort of expansion on ways to heal. I think that it can be easy to become like really... like short-sighted, right? Like, okay, the only way to heal, almost like a different kind of script, right? In order for me to heal, it has to look like this, this, and that's it. And what happens if those things aren't working for you? And I appreciate the different tools and, you know, options and stuff that you're sharing of, okay, this is something that could be explored. This is something that could be explored. Just that reminder that, you know, if there's more than one way to get from point A to point B, essentially, I think is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. There really, really is. I mean, I guess so um, with that in mind, will you talk about what somatic healing therapy is? Yeah, absolutely. So somatic meaning of the body being one with the body. It is therapy that talks about or incorporates the body into sessions. So whether it's like talking about where you feel an emotion in your body or um, letting your body move or express itself in a way that it needs to in order to better regulate or um, to experiment with what it feels like to do something differently in a session to understand the impact of trauma on the body, to understand the nervous system, to use the body 
um, using sensation and memory to process trauma. Like somatic therapy can be so many things. I think the more that I do it and the more that I learn, like somatic therapy can be like getting on the floor and stretching as you talk about your week. Like it it just is about, are, are we including the body? Is the body in the room with us or are we just like two floating heads in a room? I feel like, so that's like kind of the, the main thing is just incorporating the body. And so that can be, um, that can also look like using the body as a resource for trauma healing, but can also just look like your therapist asking you like, how do you feel in your body right now? Or like, how do you feel about your body in general? Like, how do you feel about this part of your body? Or like, what's your experience of your body at this age? All of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, cause that was gonna be my next question is like some examples of what might happen in a session like that, but it sounds like it could be lots of different stuff. Totally. Yeah. And I think people have, and I have definitely felt this way. Like there has to be this like big, huge thing that happens, this big transformation or this big like release. But, and that can happen. Like for me, breath work is always that. Like whenever I've done breath work with clients or personally in a group, um, there's always a really, really big release, but it can't be like that every session. That's like pretty overwhelming for your nervous system. So I think what, what we think somatic therapy is, is like these really, really huge transformations and like releases happening. But what it actually is, is these like really, really minute changes that bring us back into our body little bit by little bit. Mm-hmm. Have you found that somatic healing is particularly helpful for like anything specific, right? Like this would be a good fit for X, Y, Z. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's typically used with trauma survivors, but I think that everybody can benefit from it. We are all asked to leave our bodies all the time in this world. So I would say that like, it's, it's actually a misunderstanding that somatic therapy is only for trauma survivors. Yeah. That this idea of like dropping back into your body, it makes me think, I've been thinking a lot about pleasure lately and particularly mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, as it relates to sex, but like larger than that, right? And and not exclusively that. I think like the words pleasure and intimacy are often really linked with sex. And that's great. And also intimacy and pleasure can exist in like a completely non-sexual context. And so I've, I've I've just been thinking about that lately and about just like the, I don't know, like healing our relationship with pleasure is maybe what I'm talking about or like ways in which we can like be more mindful or drop into our bodies more in order to like experience more pleasure. Does that, does that make sense? Is there anything in there that you want to talk about? Yeah. I mean, I could talk about pleasure all day. Like (laughs) pleasure is, I think pleasure gets, and for a lot of my clients who are sexual trauma survivors, they hate that word. Um, And so I just want to say that like pleasure has been missed linked to being sexual but it's not just sexual pleasure is like joy in your body satisfaction in your body something like positive happy settled in your body so it really it is so many things and I think especially for people who struggle with being sexual because of trauma or who identify as asexual like we really 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 have to redefine pleasure to be so many other things Mm -hmm. um so I just wanted to name that but um, I think, yeah, like, and I obviously love Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, on this to, like, explore more of what pleasure can mean and how pleasure is a liberatory practice. But we can take pleasure in in so many different parts of our lives and our bodies are really the site of where that happens. Pleasure really is a physical experience, whether it's, like, your first cup of coffee in the morning or 
getting a massage or walking outside and taking a deep breath or hugging your friend or having sex or getting cozy in bed. Like it's all physical. It's all of the body. And if we can just really notice where we feel it, it is going to usually be inside of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That noticing piece, right? Like if, like when you said before that we're not just two like floating heads, right? Like in a room that like noticing, how does this feel in my body? What do I actually enjoy? And the, the fact that that might not necessarily be like a quick, easy answer. If that is like, is I would assume like if it's something that you haven't tapped into in a long time. Yeah, right. Exactly. Totally. Do you find that there's anything that has like either helped you with that or that you like to recommend of, you know, people who are like, I want more pleasure in my life. And like you said, maybe for whatever reason are looking for that outside of, you know, or as a compliment to sexual pleasure. Oh yeah, totally. Um, slowing down. I feel like pleasure is always available. It's almost always available to us again, like in like savoring that cup of coffee, stretching your body. Like when you stand up out of bed, when you get up out of a chair, like there's an opportunity for pleasure there. Just paying attention, slowing down and paying attention. Like I think when we like try and make it be this whole big thing, like, Oh, I have to have my like, everything has to line up for this pleasurable thing to happen, whether it be like going and getting a professional massage or like having a really particular kind of sex with someone like just, just, it doesn't have to be so big, kind of similar to like somatic therapy where it's like, it's not always the biggest thing. It can be this little moment, um, but just letting pleasure be all the time. And then these like little moments that happen all day. Yeah. I like that too, because I feel like in situations where I have like made it too big of a thing, I mean, which like doesn't mean that I don't love going and getting a professional massage, like hell yes, like <laughs> gimme for sure. But totally. if I put too many like barriers or obstacles, right? Because, you know, professional massage is not free, right? Yeah. And like that type of stuff. If I say like, okay, like pleasure has to involve like jumping through all these hoops, right? Or that like this specific partner has to want to have this specific sex at this kind of time, or I have to have like the money and the time available to go get a massage, right? These types of things. Like, like you said, it almost disconnects me from all of the available joy and available pleasure that is smaller and a lot more accessible. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Totally. I, I think of it in 2016, I started long distance hiking, like backpacking, and I had never done that before. And a lot of stuff changed for me during like, like through that experience. And one of the most impactful one things, which is one of the smallest things was how much I love showering, which is like the, the, uh, the, just the, yes. like how good it feels to like step under hot water for me. I feel like it's like my biggest joy. And now, you know, obviously like between long hikes, I would have thought that it's something that I start taking for granted again, the way I take for granted, like, Oh, there's food in the fridge or there's water here. Like that kind of stuff fades, but I don't know what it was like ever since like summer 2016 every single time I get in the shower I have this moment of like oh my god like life is so good <laughs> yes god that's so true when you like get back from backpacking and your first shower is like the most incredible experience and like being able to carry that into every shower, like why not? Yeah, yeah. I, I I took a shower right before you and I started recording, and I like I literally got and it was so hot. I'm like, oh my god, like being alive is just the best thing. It's so good. Totally, <laughs> it is so delicious. Yeah. What are some of your things like that? Like just every day, but like real deep pleasure. Yeah. 
oh, coffee. <laughs> I have one cup a day and I put condensed, a crap ton of condensed milk in it. And it is just so beautiful and delicious. And I have this one pink mug that I love so much. Like that is just like starting my day with that like pleasure. And like, it's just, oh, it's just perfect. There's nothing better. Stretching, like moving my body in a way that feels good and like actually feels pleasurable um, and helps me feel connected. That's a big one. I have so many like massage tools. I cannot recommend people enough to like start a little collection of different like foam rollers, yoga wheels, like massage balls and like use it on yourself. Like you deserve to feel good. We have the ability to make our bodies feel good. We don't need another person. Um, we do need other people, but we don't have to go get a professional massage to feel good. Mm-hmm. I, oh, what are like other, I have a weighted blanket. It, it sounds so simple, but it's really not like getting under that at night. I just feel so grounded and cozy and there's like really nothing better than that. And yeah, journaling. I do journal pretty much every day. That feels like a really nice, delightful thing to do for myself and like, Re, like looking back on how things were a year ago or two years ago and like getting to reflect in that way um, is really, really helpful and just makes me feel very connected to my life. Yeah, I love the sort of just like regular everydayness of all of these examples. And yes. yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I used to be someone who, I don't know, like put pleasure off maybe, but like it's a thing that has to be earned or it like exists at like the end of this hardship or, and not to say that, you know, like little self bribes and stuff can't <laughs> be helpful to get through things that are harder that you don't want to do. But I am like consciously the last couple of years, particularly trying to remind myself that it's something that I can have every day and it doesn't have to just be like a once in a while thing. Totally. Yes. I think that's the thing is like we, my friend Victoria Albina, who's like a totally amazing breath worker, she always says like her like hashtag is this is how we heal. And she'll like post it with like doing laundry or like making chicken stock or like these little things. And it's like, it's in my head all the time where I'm like um, making my bed. And I'm like, this is how I heal. It's like making, showing up for myself, making my bed and like making sure tonight when I get home, I have something cozy to crawl into. Um, like it really is in the little things. It really is. Whether it's somatics or it's, inner child healing or it's um taking pleasure it's it's actually in the small stuff Mm -hmm. yeah I totally agree so part of this kind of like pleasure conversation I think is mindfulness right like acknowledging like noticing like what makes you feel good right doing that kind of stuff and so I guess pivoting a little bit when it comes to bringing more of that mindfulness into our sex lives do you have a few let's call them like homework assignments so to speak or like exercise or things that you love to give people who are looking for more of that yeah I the like yes no maybe lists that sex educators usually recommend which is just like a list of different sexual activities um I do find that to be helpful for sure to do with a partner to do with yourself but I add this other layer of like can you go through it and notice in your body why you want to do those things so like when you like check yes for like hair pulling is there like a warm sensation in your head or is there like a pink light in your core like what tells you that you want to do that do you feel pulled physically towards like that piece of paper as you see it like what is the physical sensation behind that desire so like I feel like that's really helpful getting mindful about like 
when does the body say no? When does the body say yes? And another mindfulness activity. I mean, I think that breathing during sex or BDSM play is really, really helpful. So whether you're like breathing with your partner or your partner's instructing you to breathe, um, it really brings us back fully into our bodies. And if our mind is going anywhere or if we're getting stuck in any stories that like, oh, I have to come soon or like, do I look okay from this angle? Like all that bullshit. If we're breathing, we do tend to occupy our minds with the breath. Yeah, I want to go deeper into something you just said um, about breathing. You said, or if your partner's instructing you to breathe, will you say more about that? Yeah, um, I feel like during BDSM play, it can be really helpful for the dominant to remind the submissive to breathe through any sort of like pain play or um, I guess really anything um, as a way to either like stay in their bodies or be able to be more communicative about like how they're feeling or what they need. Um, as a, like, you know, there's a lot of ways for dominance to care for their submissives. And I feel like reminding them to stay inside of themselves during a scene is really, really helpful. And also, frankly, very hot. Mm, yeah, that's funny. As soon as you said that, that pinged for me, I was like, I don't know that I've ever thought about that before. <laughs> but Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, man. Now I was like, what else do I want to ask about? But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, the I guess like on before we move on on this topic, you know, talking about pleasure, talking about mindfulness, talking about BDSM. Is there anything that hasn't come up yet that you really wanted to mention or share? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like there are a lot of people who maybe are listening who have fantasies that they feel really shameful about. And I just want to say that there is nothing wrong with the fantasy that you have. If there is something, if there's some part of it that feels rooted in your privilege or your trauma, like just explore that deeper um, or your oppression. Like there's, there's something to it. And that exploration can either come up with you being like, cool, I totally never want to do that ever. Or it can end up with a scene that you might want to do with someone. And you have, um, you have a right to explore that and you have a right to, engage in that and there will be someone who doesn't think it's too much or too effed up or too kinky or whatever and that you are you're worthy of getting to experience that fantasy or that dynamic or that um sexual experience Mm, yeah i love that when you just referenced or said you know there'll be someone that doesn't think that you know that's too much or you're too much it reminded me of some of the uh like reframes i guess i'll call them that you've been doing on instagram lately that like instead of this try Mm. that and it made me think of the one of the like instead of the i'm too much (laughs) type thing can you and i I guess that that comes up for me because um you know that's something that i've struggled with a lot this like feeling of being too much or like being told that i'm too much um and i can't be alone in that so we yeah will you talk about that a little bit yeah, the like the phrase too much is usually rooted in misogyny, racism, ableism, all of these things. And it basically is the world, not the world, society, the like, again, like white patriarchal society that we live in reminding you like, be small, take up less space, like be less you. Um, so that's something that I feel like a lot of women and folks of color and queer people and folks with chronic pain and illness deal with a lot. And then also um, for those of us who maybe do take up a lot of space with our nervous systems, right? So maybe you have really big reactions to things or maybe you need a lot of help regulating. 
framing it in that way instead of like I'm crazy or I'm like really dramatic or I'm like to whatever like you are focusing your energy towards learning how to regulate and um, not to be smaller but to just be more grounded Mm, yeah I love that the last thing that I would love to ask you about um, and I think I first saw this on your blog, I think maybe, um, where you were writing about triggers and glimmers. And I had never heard the word glimmers before like that. And I was hoping that you could kind of talk about that. Yeah, definitely. So we all know, not we all know, for those who don't know, (laughs) a trigger is a trauma reminder. So it could be a smell, a place, um, a feeling, um, whatever reminds us of something that has happened to us has been difficult or traumatizing. And then a Glimmer is kind of the opposite of a trigger. It's something that brings us back into feeling safe and connected and grounded. So it can be, again, a smell, a place, a person, a feeling. And so we we oftentimes focus on the thing that's really hard and kind of lose the thing that's keeping us, um, that brings us back from that trigger. So like your glimmers can bring you back from a trigger or your glimmers can be the thing that you utilize when you feel triggered. Yeah. Okay. That's so interesting. And even the fact that it, I, when you said, oh, everyone knows about triggers, I mean, just that that is such a common word, right? Like, even as I was reading this and like listening to you talk about it, the, I'm like, man, like, what a shame that like the familiarity is with the triggers and yet I've never heard yeah. of glimmers. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yes. I think it's a pretty, um, it's definitely more of a, a newer term. Um, and I first read about it in Deb Dana's incredible book, The polyvagal theory in therapy. Okay. So I'm interested in just learning a little bit more about, I don't know, maybe like how you use glimmers or is it the type of thing where, like I think about it in my head as like a toolbox or uh, like the things that can be consciously developed. I don't know. I'm I'm just like interested in hearing more about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I work with clients using Deb Dana's worksheets that are on her website, Rhythm of Regulation, and they are free and online and anybody can utilize them. And she helps us lay out what our triggers are and then what our glimmers are um, using those worksheets and using the polyvagal ladder, which is this ladder that at the top is the safe and social connected place. Below that is the fight or flight sympathetic response. And then at the bottom is the dorsal vagal shutdown. Um, and so identifying what our triggers and our glimmers are. And then the next worksheet is what do I need to get out of shutdown? What do I need to get out of sympathetic? And what do I need to stay in safe and social? And that be, what I'm saying will make a lot more sense when you're looking at the worksheets. Um, but those that's the way that I help clients identify those and apply them. Mm, yeah. And I can link to those worksheets for sure in the show notes. Um, will you share awesome. a couple of your glimmers? Oh, yeah. That's such a great question. Um, nature, lavender, heavy blankets, tattoos, um, tattoos. Yes, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Um, big, long hugs. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about like maybe what mine are or different things. And I think that the way it's like operating in my, in my mind, I don't know if this is true for you too. It's similar to what we were talking about, about pleasure, right? Like any, if I'm experiencing a lot of pleasure in my mind, that's like the opposite of like a triggered state. Mm. Exactly. Totally. So it's something that it's like either like a lot of pleasure. I've also been thinking lately about 
the the word delight, which I don't use very much, right? Like this is like finding something like delightful, right? Like that energy. Um, I am like wanting more of that in my life too, of things where it's like just like, it's kind of that like light and joyful. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Mm. Um, and the, and Ross, the poet Ross Day has a really beautiful poetry book called the book of delights. I know. I just got it from the library. I was on, um, the wait list for it for such a long time and it just became mine like last night. So it's so exciting. It's such a good book. I love that book. So that is definitely where, where my brain is at for sure. Um, I think that's a good place to start to wrap up, but obviously we've bounced around a bunch through a bunch of different topics. Is there anything that you like either wish we would have gotten to or just kind of anything that you want to, you know, we do still have some time left, but anything else that you wanted to bring up? Oh, I guess we, t- we've t- touched on nature a couple different times, but I just want to add that, um, one of the biggest ways that our nervous systems can regulate is through nature. And so, um, if you're struggling to find a person to regulate with, um, nature is always there for you as is your inner child. But, um, that in um, the polyvagal theory and therapy by Deb Dana, she writes a lot about nature being a huge regulatory practice for human animals, um, which makes a lot of sense because we were really meant to be outside all day. (laughs) So whenever you're feeling pretty dysregulated, um, nature is always um, a resource for you. Yeah. And when you say that, do you mean just like literally going outside? Kind of what does that look like? Yeah. Going outside, paying attention to plants, paying attention to animals, breathing outside, noticing what the weather feels like on your skin, walking to water if you're close to it, taking a hike if you're able to. Um, But it can really just be going outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I love that reminder. Um, And then right before that, you said, you know, if you don't have another person to regulate with, what do you mean by that? So we regulate through people, ourselves, animals, and nature. And not everybody has someone that they feel like they can soothe or calm themselves with. And so if you don't have that, um, you do always have yourself and you do always have nature and maybe you have an an animal companion um, to regulate with as well. I think that in our like very like couple based society, we are not taught to utilize those other resources as much, but they are available to us. Mm, Yeah, that's such a good reminder. I also have been thinking too about ways in which I have been taught to deprioritize relationships that are not like the couple partner, right, relationship. And that, you know, that I don't want that to be the case, right? Like that other types of relationships for me are equally important. And I, you know, want that to be the case. Yeah, no, that's so true. And for a lot of folks, they struggle, you know, to find those relationships even outside of romantic partnerships. Mm -hmm. So remembering what you do have, even if it's not, you know, external with another person in that way. Yeah, I love that remembering like, and also like you said before about like pleasure, that kind of stuff, remembering the things that are free, that are more easily accessible. And you know, that it Mm -hmm. doesn't always have to be this like big, big thing. It doesn't have to be like your dream relationship or like, you know, weekly massages or like any of these things. Like I think that there's something really comforting and grounding in what you're saying. And, um, you know, the reminder of going outside is very welcome. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that we end these episodes are with a series of community questions. So there are eight totally random questions that everyone this month is answering. If you are down to answer eight random questions. Yeah, let's do it. How are you taking care of yourself lately? What does that look like? I am 
taking care of myself through cooking, as I've been saying a couple times in this, um, through moving my body, through breathing, through very new meditation, like 30 seconds, but I'm trying it every morning, eating breakfast, um, only one cup of caffeine in a day, and not drinking alcohol. Love it. What are some of your favorite ways to show up and care for other people? Checking in on them, texts, voice messages, hugs, sharing like a video or a meme or something that makes me think of them. Mm, Cooking, cooking for people. I do a lot of that. Mm, Yeah. What's one goal that you are currently working toward or maybe like a project that you're working on? I am working towards doing less. (laughs) Yes, love it. I love it. What is a recommendation for something to binge watch? Oh, Euphoria on HBO. I have not seen seen that yet. Mm -mm, I have not. Oh, God. Everybody needs to see Euphoria and probably unsurprising um, also Cheer on Netflix. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I watched the first one of that. Okay. Perfect. Cheer and Euphoria. So good. Okay. So this next question seems very appropriate since we've talked about food and cooking a bunch. If you're having people over for a little dinner gathering, what's your favorite go-to recipe or meal to make? Yeah. I'm making whatever Alice and Roman has put in the New York Times that week. You are not the only one to say that. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. What's something in your life that did not go according to plan, but that you are grateful for in retrospect? (laughs) Um, Being a trauma survivor. Yeah. Which, so the next question is about books. I know you've mentioned a couple already, um, but which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Oh my gosh. Um, The Polyvagal Theory and Therapy by Deb Dana is a really big one. Um, Bastard Out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison. And, um, oh, I'm such a book lover. This is so torturous. Um, one more. Let's see. There's so many beautiful books. Um, looking at my bookshelf, Trauma Stewardship. Yeah, those are the three, I would say. Trauma Stewardship. Okay. I'm excited. I always love when I get recommendations for things that I am not familiar with. It's a great one. Yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Mm. Um, Educate yourself about the land that you live on and who originally lived on it and start using the name of those folks to name the land that you live on. Mm, yes. And what is the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a particular favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah, folks can sign up for my mailing list on andreaglick.com or follow me and or follow me on Instagram at somaticwitch. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Andrea, thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the awesome Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for the show and he helps to make everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. 
And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by amazing people like Dana. Hi, Dana. Hi. So we're going to do a round of honest rapid-fire questions if you're ready. I am ready. What is your favorite pick-me-up or self-care activity after a particularly hard day? Ooh, you know, I just moved into an apartment that has like a decent bathtub again. So for me, it's totally been like an Epsom salt bubble bath kind of thing. Yes, that is absolutely my activity of dreams. And that feeling of, especially if you haven't had a bathtub or if you haven't had a great one, (laughs) having access to a great bathtub again is like a very, you know, small but amazing pleasure. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are a few of the qualities that you most look for in your friendships? You know, I, I think I look for a lot of realness, like a lot of honesty, um, and you know, like I, uh, I feel like I've made all of my closest friendships through those moments of like, like, like mutual vulnerability or not to be too dramatic, but like mutual suffering, you mm-hmm. know, my closest friendships are, uh, I made when I was working like a terrible retail job. And so I, I feel like that, uh, that like realness was sort of what pulled us all through that experience. Yeah, totally. What makes you feel really loved? I would have to say when people cook for me and it's a little bit of a projection of my own, like the, my giving love language, but um, I just really feel like food is a really amazing medium for um, sort of like expressing emotion and love and uh, so I totally love it when people cook for me. I know. I feel the same way. It's like such an incredible thing when someone else does that for me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what makes you come alive? What are you doing when you are feeling most alive, most like yourself? Um, so I, I'm a writer. And so I, I think it's it's really that. And I, I tend to forget that a little bit when I get into moments of like writer's block or, um, you know, places where I'm struggling emotionally. But like that feeling of it's almost like the runner's high of writing where I finally make it through something or I've like written my way through something. And it's like, uh, like, Oh, this is, this is me. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. That feeling, especially in kind of first person writing storytelling, when I write something that I I get to the end of it and I feel like, Oh my God, this is true. This is exactly what I wanted to say. This is exactly the way that I wanted to say it. It's almost like this pressure release valve, right? This pressure valve release of, Oh my God, like there's something in that that feels so good. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. Mm -hmm. What's one topic that you would love to hear more conversations about on the podcast this year? Um, so I've heard you ask this question before, so I tried to think about it a little bit in advance and, it was sort of hard because I feel like one of the things I love the most about the podcast is just that a lot of times there are um, like topics and episodes that like I, I never would have been able to come up with. <laughs> yeah. and so I had to learn something new from a totally different perspective. So um, it was kind of a hard question. I, I come from like a totally like recovering Catholic kind of background. So the any episodes where we start to touch on like sex and relationships, like that's... Um, obviously not new to me as an adult, but like, uh, it's just like really beneficial to me. I feel like it's filling this hole that was created through like my early education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also feel like I, I've been thinking a lot about, um, 
sort of like the self as it relates to having come of age with the internet. Mm, Yeah. Really important broad topic right now, but like I'm reading Gia Tolentino's trick mirror. Yes. I read that last month. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. That's a, that's a good topic that it's a good idea too, for something to explore in a conversation. I'm going to make a note of that. Thank you for the suggestion. (laughs) So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you have made a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, I feel like in all of the media that I consume right now, I'm really looking for sincerity. Like sometimes sincerity comes at the cost of depth. And this show has, has never been that. It has always been very sincere and very deep. And I, I, I feel like it, it really is one of the, uh, like I love what you say about sort of putting your money into what you want to see more of in the world. And this is definitely something I want to see more of. So I'd love to support it for that. Hmm. I appreciate that so much. Do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Sure thing. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and um, I'm not on there super regularly, but I do have an Instagram. It's uh, Dana.com. Gene dot spider. <laughs> nice. I love that. Um, yeah. and to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows the show to continue. And it'll be a lot of fun to get to talk to you, to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So as I always say, until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.